Well, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, let me invite you once again to turn to the book of Genesis as we're continuing this ongoing uh, exposition uh, through this first book of the Christian Scriptures. And this morning we're looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through the end of the chapter through verse 24. Genesis 3 and beginning in verse 16. Let me invite you, as you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. Here, Moses faithfully records, beginning in verse 16. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. May God bless today the reading of God's Word and the hearing of it. Let's join together again in prayer. Gracious and loving God, as we stand uh, before our open Bibles and underneath the authority of Thy Word, we ask for Thy illumination. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to comprehend, we believe, help thou our unbelief. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A curse has been defined as a solemn utterance intended to invoke harm or punishment on someone or something. You might recall that back in Genesis 2, very important passage, verses 15 through 17, the Lord Himself had instituted or commanded a covenant of life with the first man in the garden, commanding him 
not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had made provision for them to eat of all the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord had appended to that command a solemn warning there in verse 17 of chapter 2. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. This was a declaration that sin and disobedience has consequences. There were consequences that resulted from the sin of our first parents, of the first man and the first woman, as they sinned against God and they ate of the forbidden fruit. And this sin of theirs affected not only them, but we believe it has also come to affect every one of us. In fact, every person seated in this room, we have received from our first parents a fallen nature. All of us who have come through ordinary generation from them. In Genesis 3, those consequences are described within the passage we're looking at today. And twice, the language of cursing in particular is used. It has started actually back in verse 13 with the curse that was laid out upon the serpent. Thou art cursed above all the cattle and above every beast of the field. And we'll see that, that language of cursing within this passage as well in verse 17. As the Lord will say to Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And so this is where we get the biblical language of, of there being a curse that befalls humanity. And not just humanity as we find out, it spills out because of us, because of our first parents. There's also a curse upon all of creation and all because of man's sin. What is more, our passage today reveals to us that the consequences of sin have a unique and distinct impact on the different parts of creation. Most notably, we see that it affects men and women, the two great types of humanity, as we said when we preached upon this earlier in this series. According to creation, human beings are binary. There are only two types, male and female. But, the consequences of sin are unique and distinct. The fall affects us differently according to whether we are men or women. Our passage today is about loss. Mankind, noble as he may be, is not now what he once was when he stood in the state of innocence. The majestic world in which we live and we find so beautiful and awe-inspiring, even this beautiful world is not now what it once was. We've talked before in this series about, can you imagine what the creation was like? What fruit tasted like before the fall? It tastes great now. Imagine what it was like. Genesis 1 and 2 era. So this is a passage about loss and about the consequences of sin. This is why the English poet John Milton titled his famous 
work on the fall of man, paradise lost. And this is what we will hope to meditate upon today. As, as we turn to our passage to exposit it, to walk through it, we need to recall that the description for the consequences of sin had already begun in verses uh, 14 and 15. Uh, I said verse 13, I think, earlier when I, said, when I uh, mentioned the curse upon the serpent. It's verse 14, actually. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. So there was already begun the previous passage, the consequences of sin. And in fact, there's a threefold address that we noted last week that goes out in this passage. First of all, the Lord speaks to the serpent in verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, and of course He's not just speaking to the serpent, but also to that malevolent power, Satan, who is described in Revelation 12.9 as the old uh, the great dragon and that old serpent, Satan or the devil. And so there's a curse upon the serpent. And then that continues in verse 16, unto the woman, He said... And then it continues further in verse 17, and unto Adam he said. So there's a threefold address that's unfolding. We've already looked at the address to the serpent, and today we're going to continue, and we're going to look at the address of the consequences of sin to the woman in particular and to the first man. And of course, it's through them that the consequences also come down to us, and we, we get the, an idea of anthropology. The doctrine of man, how we stand, and how our natures are fallen and corrupted. Of course, we had also seen last time in verse 15, what is sometimes called the proto-evangelium. That is the first preaching, the first prophecy of the gospel. As Christ had said uh, that from the woman's seed, there would come one who would bruise the, the head of the, the serpent and stomp on the serpent's head, though the serpent would bruise his heel. And we noted that the long-standing Christian interpretation of this is that it, it looks forward to the gospel. It looks forward to redemption. It looks forward to the coming of Christ because Christ will go to the cross and there... He will victoriously triumph over Satan. He will drink of the cup of God's wrath. He will taste death for us and win a victory over sin and death and hell for us. That victory already secured will be completely realized when He returns in power and glory at the end of the ages accompanied by the saints who are already with the Lord. I noted last week a commenter, commentator who said that really the rest of the Bible is just a commentary on Genesis 3.15 as it describes the, the redemption that will come through Christ. So Paul can offer this assurance to the church at Rome in Romans 16 verse 20. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. For now, however, our passage continues to describe our present circumstances. The present consequences we can see in our own lives and in our world. The present consequences of the curse 
of man's fall into sin. And so uh, we're, we're, we're living between uh, the sin of the, the first Adam and the coming of the second Adam. And we see the, the, the sin, the, the vestiges of the fall, they're still pressing upon us. And, and we meditate upon that today. We can divide our text into four parts. We can divide our text into four parts. The first part, verse 16, as I've already mentioned, is the description of the curse upon the woman. The distinct or unique curse upon the woman. The second part, verses 17 through 19, is the distinct or unique curse upon the man. The third part of our text, in verses 20 and 21, I want to suggest, are gracious provisions made for mankind even while he is in his fallen state. And then the fourth and final part of our text, verses 23 and 24, describes the banishment from Eden. And so let's walk through the four parts of our text, if we can, together. And we begin with verse 16, which describes the peculiar, distinct, unique uh, curse, uh, the consequences of sin for the woman. Not only the first woman, but for all of her daughters who will come after her. And so it begins in verse 16, unto the woman he said. Now this is the same woman who had been made from the side of Adam. This is the same woman who had been presented to man as a help, meat or fitting for him. This is the same woman whom Adam had received as a great gift from God the Father to complete him, to satisfy his need for a companion and partner in life. And remember the great joy that, that Adam had expressed when the woman was brought to him back in Genesis 2.23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And so he was overjoyed. And remember that from this there was established the institution of marriage described by Moses in Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. There was this beautiful thing. And remember then when sin happened, what did Adam do? He threw Eve under the bus. The woman that you gave me caused me to eat of this. And it was the beginning of the tarnishing of what had been this beautiful, harmonious relationship that had been created by God. All that now was spoiled by sin. Years ago, when we first moved into our, our house, I had gone down to the local nursery and I had bought a number of bushes and plants, a couple hundred dollars worth of things. In those days, a couple hundred dollars was worth something. And I brought them back to my house and I spent all day, Saturday morning, uh, planting these plants and um, bringing mulch in and everything digging and mulching, planting, spent the whole morning. It looked great. It looked great. And then I left the house to go on an errand. And I came back a few hours later and I found out that our dog, still a puppy, had dug up every single bush and plant that I had put into the ground and made a complete and total mess 
of the garden area that I had so painstakingly planted. It was a costly disaster. I was able to put a few of the things back into the ground, but a lot of it was so damaged that I just had to take it to the dump and throw it away. If I could draw a very dim analogy, this is something like what the aftermath of the fall might have looked like. The original good design was spoiled. And we see the consequences now in humanity. The consequences for the fall of a woman seems to encompass two areas. First, it affects her capacity to conceive and to bear children. And so if we're looking again at Genesis 3 and verse 16, the Lord God says, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So the first area that it affects is her capacity to conceive and bear children. We noted before in this series that within the six days of creation, God made the world in the space of six days and all very good, that God had given what we could call a generative capacity in His wisdom to the creation. So if you look back, we just reviewed just briefly for a second, look back at chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when the Lord caused the, the grass and the, the, the herbs and the fruit tree. He provided, He created these things by the fiat power of His Word, but He provided they would have a generative capacity so they would re reproduce themselves after their own kind. Likewise, when he created the sea creatures and the fowl, uh, we will notice in Genesis 1 and verse 22 that he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And this was true of the land creatures who were created on the sixth day of creation. If you look at Genesis 1 verses 24 and 25, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. And so uh, they were able to have this generative capacity. And this is true of human beings who are made as the, as the crown of creation. As we noted in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. So God had called all these things into existence by the power of His word. But in His wisdom, He designed their continuation and expansion, not by special creation. God, God doesn't have to intervene and create by special creation every apple that hangs on the tree. He gives a generative capacity to these things. And He does this according to a, a good work of His providence. He works through creation and providence. For woman, however... This now becomes a process, this generative capacity that she has that entails pain and suffering. Not just for herself, but for all of her daughters who come after her. This means that after Genesis 3, there will be barrenness for some. There will be miscarriages and stillbirths and complications. 
And for those who conceive and bring their children to term, there will be morning sickness. And there will be great pain in childbearing. And for some, there will be postpartum depression. My mother-in-law was fond of saying sometimes to my wife's chagrin that the pain of childbearing is soon forgotten. Maybe, but if you've ever been there and seen it happen, wow, you can't dismiss the fact that it, it's, it, it involves pain. It involves pain. We can infer from this statement that had the fall not taken place, then there would have been a world with no barrenness. A world with no miscarriages. A world with no pain in childbearing and all the rest. The conception and birth of children would only have been joy and blessedness had man not fallen into sin. And so this is the first area where there are consequences. Secondly, the fall affects the woman's relationship with her husband. It affects the relationship with the man. And so we see this in Genesis 3 and verse 16. As the Lord God continues and he says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The beautiful design of God, where man and woman were joined in an all-harmonious, one-flesh union, described in Genesis 2.24, has been spoiled. And now it has been marred by rivalry, by competition, and sometimes even by outright disgust and enmity. That desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Notice the first part. Her desire, as it says in the authorized version, shall be to her husband. You might notice that the words shall be are in italic, meaning they've been provided by the translators. One edition of the authorized version that I use, Cambridge, uh, Cambridge edition, suggests an alternative translation in the Footnotes, and thy desire shall be subject to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Some have interpreted these words to indicate a woman's tendency toward a lack of satisfaction with the unique role that God has given her in life as one result of the fall. Instead of being contented with the role that she has, she desires instead to usurp or assume the role given to the man. Yet because of the unique way in which God has made men in general, she will be frustrated in this endeavor because he will generally be stronger, taller, his voice deeper and louder, and he will rule over her. Some have even suggested that men and women were originally made to be just the same. And it was only because of the fall that the wife came to be submitted unto her husband. As Paul will say, wives, submit to your husbands in Ephesians 5. But this overlooks the fact that there were inherent differences between the roles of men and women even before the fall. As we stressed before when we were previously preaching in Genesis 1, 
The Bible teaches us, Genesis 1.27, that men and women are spiritually equal. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. Men and women are both image bearers. This is unique. This is unique. The Bible has a positive view of both men and women. But even before the fall, there are differences outlined about the roles of men and women. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this. First of all, the man was made first. He has a priority in creation. Secondly, the man was given the covenant of life even before the woman was created. Genesis 2, 15-17. He was given the covenant of life and was a steward of that. Thirdly, it was the man who was given the duty by God of naming the other creatures. If you look at chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, this is described for us of how the Lord God brought the man and Adam called every living creature, whatever he called it, that was the name thereof. That was a special duty given to the man. Also, Fourthly, the woman was made as an help meet for him. Fifthly, the woman came from the man's side. And sixthly, after the fall, it is the man who is first held to account, showing us something of his responsible role. In Genesis 3.9, the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? The interrogation begins with him. And so even before the fall, there is a difference between men and women. They're spiritually equal. But they have different God-given roles by design. Man and woman were made perfectly to complement one another. When I was preaching on this passage earlier about the creation of man and woman, I, I compared them to being like Legos. They fit together perfectly, physically spiritually, emotionally, and all other alternatives are false alternatives because they're not designed perfectly to fit together. But our passage teaches us that sin has brought disorder into this relationship. And that's described in particular in the announcement of the consequences for the, for the woman. Thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Some interpreters have spoken about two sinful tendencies that exist in men and women. The woman, one of those sinful tendencies for her is she can be excessively passive. And she can act as a doormat. And so, women, that's not what intelligent submission to a husband means. It doesn't mean excessive passiveness. On the other hand, we also know that one of the sinful tendencies of the woman is to attempt to dominate and control. This is the stereotype of the, the nagging, the, 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 the henpecking wife. And so there, there are those two sinful tendencies that exist within the woman as a result of the fall. And these same two tendencies, sinful tendencies exist on the side of men also. God has made man and woman to 
complement one another, to live in harmony with one another, to be a one flesh union. And men also have two sinful tendencies. They, have a, they can have a sinful tendency to be passive, to be couch potatoes, to be aloof, uninvolved, to fail to take up their role of leadership, to fail to offer input and guidance, to offer discipline to children, care and interest in the happenings of the family. But we also know that men have another sinful tendency after Genesis 3, and that is that, that tendency to be aggressive and to be overbearing and to be my way or the highway. And when I say jump, you ask how high. Well, this is disordered. This is not as it was originally designed to be in, in harmony and, 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 and complement to one another. We could probably, all of us, give witness to this. All of us who are married. That we have sometimes strayed in one way or the other. Even if you're a single person here, you've seen it in the, your parents. You've seen it in the lives of your friends. That because of sin, disorder has entered into the picture. Think for a second about the best Marriage that you know today. The best, who's the couple you think of? That's, that, that they have a good marriage. And I want to suggest to you that the best marriage we can think of today looks like a train wreck beside what the first man and the first woman enjoyed before the fall. Secondly then, second part of our text, let's consider verses 17 through 19. The consequences for the man. And so the third part of the address, first the serpent, then the, the woman, now to the man. And unto Adam he said. That's the way verse 17 begins. And you will notice that the Lord God begins in the discussion with Adam by explaining to Adam the reason that he is bringing these consequences upon him. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. So it's interesting. The Lord begins in the conversation with Adam by giving him some explanation and reasoning for the consequences that are about to come. Those of us who are parents in the room know that in the exercise of parental discipline, of wise parental discipline, we know how important it is to give reasonable explanations at times to our children when we mete out punishments. Particularly as our children grow older. When they're younger, they don't need a 30-minute talk. They just need to know disobedience. Failure to obey is disobedience, and there's going to be a there's going to be a, a consequence for that. But we all know in parenting, there comes a point where it's completely inappropriate for you physically to discipline your children when they get older. If you've done the, if you've done the hard work early on, what happens is your discipline comes through your words, it comes through your expressions of approval or disapproval, it comes through your instructions comes through your reasoning with them. Reasoning with them. 
And isn't it interesting that the Lord gives us a model here for dealing with discipline. And he reasons, he reasons with Adam to explain to him the consequences. If we don't give reasonable explanations to our children, they think our punishments are random, arbitrary, unreasonable, and unjustified. And the Lord God, our loving Father, explains to Adam the infraction and he explains to him the consequences. His discipline is never irrational for us and it never comes to us unexpectedly. He tells us in the scriptures what's right and what's wrong and he tells us what the consequences will be for it. So he begins, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Rather than leading the woman, as Adam was meant to do, into righteous obedience... Adam had instead followed her into disobedience. And notice in particular the emphasis here in verse 17 on the term the voice. In Hebrew, the kol. You hearkened unto the voice of your wife. And what should he have listened to? The voice of God. Instead he had listened to the voice of the woman. And then he explains again the infraction. As he says... And hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Here he simply reminds the man that his sin was rooted in disobedience to the command of God. And again, it's laid out, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the covenant of life. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. He was given the warning, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And he disobeyed the command of God. Our Baptist Catechism asks, what is sin? And it answers, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. We are being taught through that catechism question and answer what sin is. It is either a want of conformity unto the commands of God or a transgression of the law of God. And sometimes it's both. So we are taught it is a sin if we fail to do something God has commanded us to do. The Bible gives us positive commands. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy as I am holy. We fail to do those things. We are failing to conform ourselves to the commands of God. On the other hand, the Bible teaches us, and our catechism affirms, that sin also involves failing, not doing something God has commanded, failing, rather, not to do something God has commanded us not to do. So that's the transgression of the law. And the law gives us, God gives us in His Word negative commands. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. If we take the Lord's name in vain, we're transgressing the command. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication. Flee sexual immorality. We do that, engage in that, we're breaking God's command. Do not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Hebrews 10.25 If we failed not to do something God has commanded us not to do, then uh, we fall into sin. In Adam's case, the foundational sin 
was a lack of conformity to God, but it was also a, a sin of doing something God has explicitly told him not to do. Namely, God had told him, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he had done that very thing. And there were consequences that would come down to him as our Heavenly Father patiently explains to him. The consequences for the fall of man in particular touch upon three sometimes overlapping areas. First of all, the Lord God announces that there is a curse upon the ground that results in the decrease of the apparently super abundant pro productivity it had enjoyed before the fall. And we see this in verse 17. The very first consequences spelled out is, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. And so, again, the land that had been so productive in the pre-fallen state, now its productivity will be decreased and the man will have to experience sorrow in scraping out an existence from less productive ground. The woman had sorrow in conception and childbearing. The man will have sorrow in this less productive ground. Already in this statement, there is a hint of the fact of what will be spelled out later, that man's life has been circumscribed also. He will not live forever. As it says, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. What does that indicate? Already. His life's not going to go on and on forever as it might have. It's going to be circumscribed. And so, uh, there's added... Also in verse 18, uh, the appearance of thorns and thistles. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And so there will be, there will be weeds, thorns and thistles that will choke out the productive plants and will require constant and painful labor to control and cultivate the ground to provide food. Again, can you imagine what the pre-fallen world was like? No thorns, no bramble, no noxious weeds, no need for Roundup, uh, no market for it. Uh, can we imagine what the pre-fallen world was like? We should also take note of the fact that such was the status of the first man that his sin greatly impacted not only himself, but also through him, all humanity, all of us who come from him by ordinary generation, but also in addition to that, man's sin affects the rest of creation. Think about that statement. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. We're living in a god cursed environment because of man's sin. Gorgeous as this world is, it's not what it once was. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain 
together until now. The creation somehow is in pain because of our sin. Some of the old Puritan writers describe the enmity that has come between man and the rest of creation due to man's fall. Thomas Boston in his human nature and its fourfold state warned, your meat, drink, and clothes grudge being serviceable to the wretch that has lost God and abuses them to his dishonor. The earth groans under you. Yea, the whole earth groaneth and travaileth in pain together because of you and such as you are. You ever think when you go out there and enjoy nature, all this beautiful nature, that sometimes nature might look back at you and if it could speak, say, there he is. One of those descendants by ordinary generation of the one who spoiled what was so perfect. Another Puritan writer, Joseph Aline, imagined that if the food on our plates could talk, and if the air that we breathe could talk, he imagines that they would be plotting and asking God's permission to rise up and to choke all of us for how for what we have done to the created order. Second of three consequences for the man spelled out here. He will have to labor by the sweat of his brow. Verse 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. Now, what this tells us is that his work in a fallen world will be hard. But we need to be careful here because work in and of itself is not a curse. Work or vocation is good. And it was given to man before the fall. Look back at Genesis 2.15. And Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. Work and vocation is good. Work before Genesis 3 was a joy to do. Work before Genesis 3 was always fulfilling, inspiring, God-honoring. And now, it can still be that. There can still be traces of that. But what is it also often? Drudgery. Difficult. Cumbersome. Students who are in the room, did you ever think when you're struggling to write that paper or to study for that test that this is part of the vestige of the fall? It's something that should be wonderful and fulfilling learning. It can be hard and difficult. Notice also the ending there in Genesis 3.19. There's also a little, another little anticipation. You're to, you're to work by the sweat of your face, eat your bread, till thou return unto the ground. And this leads us to the third aspect, the third consequence of the fall, and that is the mortality of man. Look at the second half of verse 19. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Remember back in Genesis 2-7 that man was formed out of the dust of the earth, and that God breathed life into him and made him a living soul. And now the Lord God declares as a result of the fall 
that man who had been formed out of dust will return to dust. The Apostle Paul will reiterate this in Romans 6.23, that famous passage when he says, the wages of sin is death. Think about it for a second. The most beautiful actresses, the most handsome actors, the most in-shape athletes, the most health-conscious and fit persons who ever lived on the face of the earth will one day die. As a friend of mine said, the mortality rate for healing evangelists is 100%. As the Old Testament puts it, we will all go the way of all flesh. And notice that this curse, although it is explicitly delivered to the man, it's in the section where the man is addressed, because of his special role, it applies both to the man and to the woman, doesn't it? This illustrates both the federal headship of Adam and the headship of man in the marriage relationship. And so uh, we see the consequences of sin. Let's move on now to the third part of our passage, verses 20 and 21. What I've called God's gracious provisions for mankind even in the fallen state. The consequences for sin have been explained, they've been applied. But then there are two things described that I think could be best understood as God's gracious provisions made even for sinful men, even men who have fallen, even men who have disobeyed. The first of those is spelled out in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And again, we already called attention to the fact that Adam had given been given the duty and privilege of giving names to all the animals in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And now, uh, Adam is permitted to take up the duty uh, of giving a name to the woman whom the Lord God had provided for him. Previously, she had simply been called his wife. Now she is given a name. Now, this is not to say that a woman is less than a man. Again, Genesis 1.27, men and women are equal. They're both image bearers. They're they, they, they are spiritually equal. Uh, she is not meant to be dominated by the man abusively. But it says more about the Lord continuing to give to man the, the maintenance of, the renewal of, the dominion over creation that had been especially given to him. And now he still has that duty even despite the fall. The woman is called Eve a name that comes from the root for the word life. So she is called in verse 20, the mother of all living. Conception and childbearing for the woman will be filled with sorrow. It will be hard. It will be painful. But it will continue in the fallen world. See, God could have not allowed the woman to continue to conceive. And this could have been the end. This could have been the punishment for humanity. But instead, God, who is gracious, He allows the generative capacity to continue. And what is more, His action here signifies the fact that the the promise made previously in verse 15 will be fulfilled because it's from the woman, from the seed of the woman, that the one who will come forth 
who will crush the head of Satan. And we see a reminder here of God's keeping His Word and that He will provide a Redeemer. Secondly, in verse 21, we read, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 7, when they had sinned and their eyes were open and they saw their nakedness and were filled with shame, they tried to cover themselves with perishable fig leaves. But the Lord God now provides something better to cover their shame. And we noted before that uh, this means at this point to have these animal skins, that there had to be death in the animal world. A sacrifice had to be made. A victim had to give up his life so that sinful men might be covered. And what we see here is a type of that which is to come a lesser sign of that greater sign which is to come. We see a type for Christ, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the whole world. And then the, the fourth and final part of our passage, verses 23 and 24, is the banishment from Eden. And again, we see that the consequences of sin are real. What man once possessed is now lost. And so, in verse uh, 22... It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And so we see there are consequences for Adam's sin. There are consequences that fall down upon him. He is... He is forced to to be banished essentially from the garden in which God had placed him. No longer does he have access to the tree of life. He had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But remember back in chapter 2 verse 9, there had been placed in the midst of the garden, uh, there had been placed there the tree of life. And, And now he does not have access to the tree of life. It means that man could no longer be able to live forever. It means that because of the curse of death that had been given to man, there would be no natural means for men to continue to live. He's made from dust, to dust he will return. And we see in verse 22 how Moses reports the Lord speaking within his own internal counsels. The man has become as one of us. And so the Lord in his own triune eternal counsels determines that man will not be able to experience natural immortality by eating from the tree of life. He is sent out of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken, as it says in verse 23. And then finally in verse 24, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims. We think of a cherubim, I think of a little fat child. That's not with a cherubim. Think of dread warriors messengers that bring awe. And there's also a flaming sword which turns every way that blocks any fallen man's approach to the tree of life. And so this concludes the, the description of the consequences. Let me, let me move quickly. I hope by the, with the Spirit's help you've already drawn 
some spiritual connections, but let me hasten to just point out a few the things that we might draw from this passage. I think, first of all, and most foundationally, we learn, as we've stressed already, that sin has consequences. My dear friends, my young friends who are here today, your lives ahead of you, don't think for a second that you can, you can sin against God either by not conforming your life to His commands or by transgressing His commands. And you can do those things with impunity. That there won't be consequences. There were consequences for the first man, the first woman. There will be consequences for you. You've already experienced consequences of it. Because you've received a sin of nature. But if you continue to commit actual transgressions, you will, you will reap what you have sown. And so there's a warning for all of us, not just for the young people, for, for, for all of us of any age. There were consequences for Adam's sin that we bear in our bodies and our minds to this very day. And we also need to remember that. Our sins will affect other people. There are no victimless sins. Parents, our sins will affect our, our children. They'll affect our grandchildren. They'll affect our neighbors. These things will trickle down to them and affect them, even as our first parents, their sin has affected us. We're also reminded here that the good and beautiful design that God made for man and woman in the institution of marriage has been damaged, it's been tarnished by sin. And with that knowledge, those of us who are married or who aspire to marriage, we must stop and we must consider we need to pause and reflect with humility. How have I been affected by this? What sinful tendencies have I demonstrated? And how by God's grace might I find out this corruption so as to live instead more fittingly as a follower of Christ? Have I had a sinful tendency towards Excessive passivity or excessive activity? Have I tried to dominate, to be overbearing? Have I been unkind? We need to examine our own hearts. When we preached earlier on the institution of marriage in Genesis 2 18 through 25, Remember we went forward and looked at Matthew 19. We looked at Christ preaching about marriage in which he, he quotes Genesis 2.24. And then we looked at Ephesians 5 when the Apostle Paul quoted Genesis 2.24. And in Matthew 19 in particular, Christ was asked by the Pharisees why Moses allowed a writing of divorcement. And Christ gave his response in Matthew 19 verse 8. He said that 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 Moses had allowed this because of your hardness of heart. But then Christ added, Matthew 19.8, but from the beginning it was not so. The standard for Christians is not Genesis 3, but Genesis 2. Our standard is to, by God's grace, as the image of Christ has been made in us, and the image of God is being restored in us, to live our lives, have our marriages reflect Genesis 2 and not Genesis 3. By the grace of God and the love of Christ, let us strive to restore what has been tarnished. We need also today to think, if we can briefly, just a little bit about life and eternal life. 
Because of Adam's sin, we all know our mortality. And we know that natural immortality is lost. But Christ promised life. Christ promised abundant life that begins here and now for those who trust in Him. And He also promised beyond this life, eternal life. Maybe the best known passage in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Through Christ, the second Adam, a new way of access has been made to the tree of life. By the tree of death, the cross, we may eat of the tree of life. If I could, lastly... We were in the first book of the Bible and look at the last book of the Bible and look at the very last chapter, Revelation 22, and notice the way it begins. This is John seeing the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the new creation. He says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb, in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. How is there a tree on both sides of the river? I don't know. But it's there. It's on both sides. It's one tree, but it's on both sides. It's it's easily accessible to all those who are residents of the city. It bears twelve manner of fruits, And yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will be no peace on earth. Until the nations eat of the tree of life. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face. And His name shall be in their foreheads. But look back at verse 3. What have we been talking about in Genesis 3 today? The curse. But what's declared in Genesis 22.3? There's a place where there there shall be no curse. Because of Christ, there's a land that awaits the saints of God where we might eat again of the tree of life and where there shall be no more curse. All the enmity between men and women taken away. All the pain taken away. All the sorrow. All the difficulties of labor taken away. Friends. And there shall be no more curse. Hallelujah. Glory be to the Father. And to the Son. And to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning. Is now and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to stand together. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks for thy word and for this description of what we know is a reality. It's, it's just one of those places where the scriptures are just so true that any sober, reasonable, an honest person will say, this is true. But, oh God, help us to understand not only the truth of Genesis 3, but the the truth of Revelation 22. 
uh, that there is a place where, where there is no curse. And help us to uh, take in thy word today, to live by it, to be renewed by it, transformed by it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.